copy now of God's Word and turn with me to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Today, opening into chapter 5 of that letter, I want to give you uh, a bit of the lay of the land for the next several weeks, if possible. Uh, with the Lord's help, it is my hope that we will finish Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians next week. Uh, that means uh, a bit longer passage than we sometimes study together. Uh, who knows, might mean longer sermons for those of you that like that sort of thing. And for those of you that don't, might still mean longer sermons. You never know. Uh, but, uh, but it is my hope that over the next two weeks we can finish 1 Thessalonians, and then we will break for two weeks of Advent-focused sermons, uh, texts, uh, both from the Old and the New Testament, reminding us of the joy and the miracle of Christ's incarnation. Uh, but today we are studying his second Advent from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and today we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. You can find that on page 987 of our ESVs if you've not found it yet. Uh, before we read this word together, let us go to the Lord and seek his blessing, uh, and let us pray to him that he would give us wisdom by his word. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Lord and God, we come to your word and we pray that you would give us wisdom. This is your word, and you have made us by faith your people. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has died and is risen and is coming again. Help us to believe in him, O Lord, and believing in him, help us to be ready for that day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need for anything to be written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober." having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another, and build one another up, just as you are doing. Thus far, the reading of God's holy in an errant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. Well, at uh, 10 o'clock in the morning, the sky went black. Not dark, not dusky, black. Uh, black uh, as the middle of the night in the middle of the day. What very little of the sun that could be seen revealed that it was not an eclipse that caused the darkness. The dim light that barely broke through the cloud cover uh, was the color of blood. 
Eyewitness reports said that cows returned to their stalls. Bats came out of their roosts. They said that spring flowers uh, shrunk closed and that the evening birds began their nighttime serenade. Lunchtime was served by candlelight. And even pocket watches could not be read by man standing next to windows. The date was May the 19th, 1780. It is a day known as New England's Dark Day, or if you prefer, a bit more pizzazz, simply Black Friday, the original Black Friday. And on that day, a black sky spread from portions of southern Canada down to portions of northern New Jersey, bathing all of New England in a blackness that was practically palpable. Now, scientists and historians later discovered or determined that the cause of the darkness was probably a massive wildfire burning just outside of Ontario, Canada. But in an age where the biblical literacy is much greater than our own, you can imagine exactly how people reacted to the darkness. Many families gathered in homes for prayer. Many people went to church to sit in packed-out pews. Many pastors opened their Bibles to eschatological texts and preached unstudied sermons with an urgency that they probably were unaware they were capable of. Many people believed that the day of God's judgment had come. And New England's dark day revealed those who were anticipating that day and those who were fearful of it. As it might be expected, it also revealed those who never believed in all of that judgment stuff to begin with. So William Pynchon was a lawyer in Salem, Massachusetts, and he said that while most people scurried about with melancholy and fear, not so the sailors. He said the sailors hallooed and frolicked through the streets. He said the sailors were reproved in vain for the drunken shouts they tossed toward women passing by. Of all the responses to this inexplicable darkness, none is more famous than the response of a man by the name of Abraham Davenport. Davenport was a pious man. He was the kind of Christian who believed in things like the judgment of God. He was also a member of the Connecticut Council, or what today we would call the Connecticut State Senate. Well, on May the 19th, 1780, the Connecticut Senate, or the Council, was in session. They were dealing with an amendment uh, to a law regarding the regulation of fisheries. And when the darkness descended, many members of the council began making motions to the effect that they should adjourn for the day so that everyone could go home and be with their families. And Abraham Davenport disagreed. He said, I am against adjournment. The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for adjournment. And if it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. So should every disciple of Jesus Christ want to be found on that day doing their duty, ready and faithful. Matthew chapter 24, verses 44 and 46. This is exactly what Jesus said. Jesus said, you must be Ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And blessed is that servant whom his master will find faithful when he comes. 
No, it's true that the day of judgment did not come on May 19, 1780. But it is coming. It may come today. Do you think about that? Do you believe that? Do you wake up in the morning and say, it might be today? Or have we lost that in the church anymore? The day of God's judgment is coming, and it might be today. It might not be yet. But the day of the Lord will come when he has decided. And while we wait for that day, we need not be anxious. We need merely to be ready. Well, that's the message that the Holy Spirit gives to his church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's a call to be ready. A call to live like people who are looking forward to the day of the Lord. As we unpack this, uh, this message today, it comes to us in a lesson about timing. It comes to us in a lesson about surprise. And it comes to us in a lesson about being ready. So our three points, timing, surprise, and being ready. The first lesson about timing is that Christ is coming on a day that no one knows. It's important for us to understand as we turn to chapter 5, that as we turn away from chapter 4, Paul is not changing the subject. It might look that way if you're only reading an English Bible, if you're reading an ESV, which is very helpful in many regards. It has that large number 5 there indicating a new chapter. It has a new subject heading telling us that this is something else. And if you look back at chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, we find that those verses must be, according to the heading, about the coming of the Lord. And these verses in chapter 5 must be about the day of the Lord. And if you're taking your, uh, your moorings only from those, uh, those landmarks, you might wonder if those are two different topics. But they are not. Well, they're a single event, actually. They're a specific day, yet in the future, when Christ will return, and he will return both to judge the world in righteousness and to deliver his church to himself. He will come to deliver and to destroy. And if you were with us through the summer, if you have been with us through some of our studies of the minor prophets, you know that this is what they spoke about as well. In the Old Testament, they spoke exclusively of this dual day of judgment and deliverance as the day of the Lord. In the New Testament, it's also called the day of the Lord. But in addition to that, it's called the day of Christ's coming, his parousia. That was the topic at the end of chapter 4. But as we turn to chapter 5, you'll notice in verses 9 and 10 that Paul picks up the language he's just used in chapter 4. Verses 9 and 10, he begins to tell us that through salvation, whether awake or asleep, we will be with the Lord who died for us. That's deliverance language, isn't it? That's what he's just told us at the end of chapter 4. And when will that happen? Well, it will happen on the day of the Lord on the day of judgment, when sudden destruction comes upon those who are unaware. It happens at the same time. Paul is not changing subjects as he moves into this new passage. Rather, he is answering the next logical question, the one that almost always comes up when we read or we learn or we speak about the coming of Jesus Christ. The question is, when will it happen? When will it be? Today is December 4th. That means today is the fourth day in our household of our annual Advent calendars. 
Just the little ones, right? Just those little cardboard jobs you get at Market Basket on the end cap. Uh, but it's a fun way to pass the time, right? Every day for each of the children, there's a new flap to open. There's a new piece of chocolate to eat. And every day for Sarah and for me, there is another easy way to answer that question that always comes up. How many more days until Christmas? <laughs> Count the flaps. I, I don't know. That's when it's coming. When God has good things for us, when we know that good things are coming, that is the natural question that we always want to ask. How long do we have to wait? When will these things be? It's a natural impulse. It's not a new question, actually. Certainly not about the coming of Christ. At the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' disciples asked him, when will these things take place? And what will be the sign of your coming in the close of the age? Well, then Jesus was arrested, then he was crucified, and then he was resurrected. And before he ascended, uh, returned to the Father, they were still asking the same question. Acts chapter 6, uh, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they came to him and they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus' answer there at the, the time of his ascension is strikingly similar to Paul's answer to the Thessalonians. Acts chapter 1, verse 7. Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Do you hear that? Paul says the same thing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. He said something like that back in chapter 4. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need to have anyone write anything to you. But there it was because they had already been taught. Here, Paul says, you have no need to have anything written to you because there's nothing else to know. There's nothing else that you can hear. No, no further uh, information that you can receive. You have no need to have anything written to you about the times and the seasons. Verse 2, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When the Lord declares good things for his children, God's children ask, when will it happen? We ask that question partly because we can't wait for it. We're anticipating that day. We also ask the question of when because we think that that day might be easier to manage if we know when it's coming. That's the way that we deal with visitations from other people, don't we? So on Monday morning, you reach out via email, you invite someone over for dinner on Saturday, and you tell yourself all the way till Friday evening, I don't have to do any preparation until Saturday morning. I can get ready then because I know when they're coming. It's easier to manage. But for as long as the church has been waiting for Christ to return, the answer to the question of when has been the same. Christ is coming on a day that no one knows. He is coming back, but he's coming on his own timetable. He is not coming on some day that you can predict, or some hour that you can decipher, or some time that you can calculate from the details that he's left behind in some obscure or hidden text, or some prophecy yet to be revealed. Christ is coming on a day that no one knows and that no one will know. Paul says that the day is coming and it will be unexpected, and he says that Christ is coming in a way that will be unavoidable. 
unexpected and unavoidable. This is how he uses these two images of a thief and a woman in labor. A thief comes, of course, when he is, at least hopes, to be unexpected. The thief waits so far as he is able uh, until the car is easy to steal, until the house is easy to be broken into. Maybe the people are away. Maybe they're asleep. Maybe they're somehow or another unaware. So the thief comes when he's unexpected. Not so for a pregnant woman in labor. When a pregnant woman goes into labor, it is not unexpected. Quite the opposite. That's why for most first-time families, you get a copy of that book, right? What to expect when you're expecting. It is expected. You know that it's coming. So toward the end of the third trimester, you go and you tour the hospital, right? As the day approaches, you keep a bag packed by the front door. You keep the gas tank full. You keep the midwife on speed dial. You do everything you can do to get ready for that day because you know that once it starts, it is inescapable. You can't get away from it. Once those contractions really begin, there is precious little that you can do to stop them. And that's how Jesus is coming when he comes back. He's coming at a time that is unexpected like a thief. He's coming at a time that is unavoidable like a childbirth. But he is coming back. He's coming on a day that no one knows. This means really the first application point for the church. This is a warning not to be easily fooled. Not to be duped by all the hucksters who are out there who would love to tell you that their ministry can give you the key to understanding what God has not revealed to anybody else. The timing, when Christ will return. They are a search and a click away on the internet, more than you could ever imagine to find. YouTube channels and weekly newsletters and downloadable PDFs for a donation of any amount of your choosing, of course. Right? They are there. They are these slick-suited preachers who prey on the gullible. They are the televangelists promising to unlock the secrets of prophecy and visions to reveal when Christ is coming back. But according to God's word, we need to know that we cannot know. That's the point. The timing will not be revealed to us, even though it's happening. And Jesus is coming back on a day that no one knows. Now, when he comes back, not everyone will be surprised, though. That's the point, uh, the second lesson we find here today, the point about surprise, that when Christ returns, God's children will not be surprised. Take a look again at verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Christians won't be caught off guard. We won't be completely unaware that the Lord is coming. Of course, there are some who will be. And so to really understand the force of verse 4, we have to see it in contrast to the statement of verse 3. Paul says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. It's possible with those words, verse 3, it's possible that Paul has in mind some particular teaching that's going around in Macedonia and Thessalonica. 
it's possible that he's dealing with some false prophet who's going around trying to convince Christians that, you know, the future really is not going to be all as dramatic as Paul says it will be. It's just going to keep going on like this for a long time. The church always has to guard against teachers like that. Those are the kinds of teachers that Jeremiah warned about. False prophets who said, peace, peace, when there was no peace, when judgment was coming. And so it's possible Paul is talking about a particular teaching in verse 3. I think knowing what we know about the human heart, it's just as likely to say that Paul is dealing there with the general way that sinners try to avoid spiritual realities simply by denying that they exist. And so Michael Martin is a scholar who says that these words, verse 3, describe self-deceived people. What did that deception look like? Well, among the Greek pagans that Paul often preached to, uh, in their mind, their philosophy, they viewed history not as uh, a linear progression as we might from a Christian westernized worldview, but they viewed it as a cycle. A sort of never-ending revolving door of decisions and events that will repeat themselves and recycle over and over again from infinity into uh, eternity. It's almost like the idea, of a Hindu idea, of continual death and rebirth. But the Greeks thought of it in terms of human societies. Human societies will be reborn. They will be resuscitated and reborn into something new forever and ever. The Greeks believed in gods in their own way. They even believed that the gods were involved in the realm of humanity. That they had some influence on in what happened among men, but they did not believe in a day of judgment like the Bible uh, tells us about a day of judgment. The kind of judgment that tells us that history is actually heading somewhere. That it has a culmination point, that that culmination point is directed by the one who made it. In his second letter, Peter not Paul, 2 Thessalonians, but in 2 Peter, Peter seems to be warning the church about the influence that that kind of Greek thinking was beginning to have backward into the church. Here's what he says. 2 Peter 3, 4, he warns about scoffers in the last days who will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And so there is this denial. No, 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 there, there is no judgment. It will just keep going on. Peace and security, peace and security. That's all we have to look forward to. Significantly, this kind of thinking is on the rise in our increasingly post-Christian society. It increases along with the popularity of Eastern philosophies. It increases along with New Age influences in our wider culture. Of course it does, because among all of the doctrines that, uh, that the world loves to reject, there are few as unpopular as the day of God's wrath and judgment. We'll take any excuse, any, any seemingly plausible philosophy that will allow us to say, I don't want to think about a day of judgment, and so I won't. Peace and security, we preach to ourselves. Then it comes about maybe through paganism, maybe through philosophies, maybe through old-fashioned skepticism or unbelief. But we preach to ourselves, many people preach to themselves, peace and security for the future, and they deny that anything is going to change or that God's judgment will ever show up in the world. Paul says that day is still coming. 
despite their unbelief, despite their rejection, it will come, and when that day comes, those people will be caught unaware. He says that day will come with a destruction they cannot escape. They will be utterly surprised, verse 4, but not you. Not you, dear Christian. You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. It will surprise us in one way of speaking, intellectually speaking, right? Because we don't know the timing, we'll say, oh, oh, there it is. It's happening now, right? It'll, it'll surprise us intellectually in a sense. But for the Christian believer, the fact of Christ's coming will not be a surprise. It'll be looked for. It'll be longed after. It will be utterly utterly expected. He says, you are not in darkness so as to be surprised. That's a statement really, not, not so much about our smarts as Christians, by the way. You're in the light. You, you've been enlightened. That's not what he means. It's not so much about our smarts as it is about our standing in the Lord. Not about our intellectual enlightenment as it is about our engagement to belong to the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. You see this metaphor, this, this picture of light and darkness all throughout Scripture. It's one of these recurring images that in a single picture, uh, it can show us the contrast, the divide uh, between life and death, right? between truth and falsehood, between faith and rebellion. Typically in Scripture, when it's applied metaphorically, darkness is applied intellectually or spiritually or morally. Sometimes they're all uh, twisted together into one picture. On the other hand, light, God's light, can be applied in the same ways, morally, spiritually, intellectually. So in Ephesians 5, when Paul calls the church to godly living, what does he tell them to do? He urges them to walk as children of the light. Here's your moral behavior in a world gone wrong. You should walk in a way that represents who you are as children of God. Walk as children of the light. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul describes the miracle of a saving understanding of the gospel. He describes it as an act of God, the very same God who made light shine out of the darkness, he says, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's an intellectual light, isn't it? In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, he describes the heavenly inheritance that Christians have with the saints of light, and he reminds us that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. You expect light there, don't you? That's the contrast. Out of darkness and into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. What is the kingdom of Jesus Christ? It's the kingdom of light, where the children of light live and learn and grow in the Lord, where God by his Holy Spirit and through his word dispels all the intellectual and spiritual and moral darkness we would otherwise find our way into. So all of it helps us to understand what Paul means when he says that we are not in darkness to be surprised on that day. You are children of the light, he says, and he doesn't mean that you Christians, you're far too smart to miss what's coming in the future. He doesn't mean that you are somehow better equipped, right? more gifted than all of those unbelievers and those new agey types who deny the coming judgment. Rather, he means that by the grace of God, you have been given the gift of a new expectation. 
You're looking for something that those in darkness are not looking for. It didn't come from you. The arguments that you heard and the books that you read, it comes from the Holy Spirit to make you children of light, to plant the hope of salvation into your heart and into your mind and into your soul. I dare you to do it tonight. Right? Tonight, Redeemer Church, many of us, we're going to be out in the streets of Concord. We're going to be singing songs of Jesus to those who are walking by without a care in the world. And I dare you to grab somebody who's just walking by and ask them, what do you think will happen when the world ends? How will the end of the world come about? And they'll look at you and they'll say, well, that's a silly question to ask, isn't it? You must have something wrong with you. The world's not going to end, not anytime soon, at least. They'll tell you the world's not going to end for another five billion years. Not until our sun runs out of hydrogen and swallows the solar system. And by that time, we'll all be so far gone that we won't care what happens when the world ends. And then I dare you to tell them what you think. <laughs> tell them that this old world is going to end when Jesus Christ returns for judgment and salvation. You tell them that this creation will come to its zenith on the day that the Lord reveals all the secrets of the hearts of men when he calls us to account before the throne of Jesus. Tell them and watch them look at you like you've got a third head. Right? If you are a Christian, if that is really what you believe, just because the Bible tells you so, why is it that you go that way in your faith? Now, the world will tell you it's not because you're smarter. Right? Not because you've heard those arguments and read those books. It is because God has transferred you out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's because God has enabled you, enabled you maybe even in spite of yourself, to believe what he tells you is going to happen on the day of the Lord. That's why you won't be surprised. Not because you've got it figured out. Right? But because, as Paul says in verse 9, because God has destined us to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. He has appointed us. He has set us apart. It is God's work that keeps us unsurprised on that unexpected day. And it's also his work that makes us ready. Now here's the third, the final point in our passage. That God's true children must always be ready for the day of the Lord. Now in verse 6, you notice Paul applies the church's expectation to our daily living. Verse 6, he says, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake. Let us be sober. He says almost the same thing in verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Stay awake, he says. Stay sober. Stay in control of your faculties. Live his people who are always ready for action when the Lord returns. This is, of course, a spiritual metaphor, Right? The church cannot physically stay awake until the Lord returns. And while we must not give in to the literal sin of drunkenness, this has way more to do than with how you can hold your alcohol. 
this is a warning here against the sort of spiritual drowsiness that leaves you unconcerned about the day of Christ's coming. It's about the kind of faith that loves to hit the snooze button one more time, right? Knows it should be up and active and probably in the shower by now, and I would be embarrassed if you knew how many times I hit the snooze button this morning because it is cold outside and it's warm in the bed, and you just want to stay there. And that's what Paul's talking about. Don't be the kind of believer that's always saying, let's put it off maybe, not yet. It's comfortable here. I want to stay here. I've got a good thing going now. Paul's saying, stay awake. Don't fall asleep. Don't get drowsy in your faith. Stay awake, he's saying. Be active. Remember the scene in the garden with Jesus. Jesus is there, and he takes three of the disciples aside, and he tells them, stay awake. Watch with me. He tells them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Stay awake, stay alert, live like people who are concerned about what concerns me, he's telling them. And three times, Jesus comes back and finds them snoozing. Who could blame them, I suppose? It had been a long day. They had a big meal. Jesus had told them things about themselves and things about the future that were unsettling. They weren't at ease, but now they were in the garden in the cool of the evening and the moonlight was shining through the olive branches and it seemed like the perfect place just to make themselves comfortable for a little bit. Well, in that moment, their sleep was an indication that they didn't really understand what was happening at all, did they? That was the problem. Do you really think that these men who were used to staying awake all through the watches of the night, to man their fishing boats and to fish and to strain themselves, do you really think that they would have fallen asleep if they actually believed that Jesus was going to be arrested and crucified by 9 o'clock the next morning? Do you really think that Peter, with his sword strapped to his side, would have taken a nap if he believed that the crowd was already on their way through the forest, through the trees, with their torches and their clubs? Of course not. Their sleep was not an indication of weakness so much as it was an indication of unbelief. Weak faith. Faith that heard Jesus' words but didn't really care to make them a priority. The same thing happens to you, dear believer. The same thing happens to you when you let this world lull you to sleep when you let it rock you into the dreams of the peace and the security that can be yours, if only you will give all you have to pursue worldly comfort. Here's how Greg Beale put it. He said that to be drunk spiritually is to imbibe too much of the world's way of looking at things and not enough of the way that God views reality. On the other side, Calvin said this, He said that spiritual sobriety is when we use this world so sparingly and so temperately that we are not entangled with its allurements. That's what it means to be spiritually sober. It means temperance, in a sense. Temperance with the world's things. It means to keep a loose grip on all those things that will be dissolved on the day that Christ returns to gather his church. 
It means living with a hope in the future that God promises to believers rather than sinking our trust into the present we can provide for ourselves. Spiritual sobriety means living by faith rather than sight. Spiritual sobriety means seeking those things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Spiritual sobriety means approaching each day with a conviction that actually this could be the last day. It means facing each day with a spiritual joy that if it is the last day, that's actually better than whatever you had planned for your life for the next 10, 10, 20, 40 years. In a word, spiritual sobriety means living like people who believe, who really believe what God has in store for his people. In verse 8, our English Standard Version handles the nuances pretty nicely. It says, since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. It's probably too late in the sermon for a grammar lesson, but that phrase, having put on, that's one participle in the Greek. Specifically, it is a past participle, which means it is describing something that has already happened. Now, what does that mean for us? Uh, the significance is that Paul is not telling us how to live soberly. He's not saying that we, if we get all suited up the best that we can, if we, if we gather our best protection and we do well enough protecting ourselves, then one day we'll be safe when the Lord comes. He's not telling us how to live soberly while we wait for the Lord. He's telling us where any of our sobriety might come from in the first place. It is an outworking of our salvation, he's telling us. It is a product of the same faith and love and hope that Paul thanked the Holy Spirit for in the church all the way back in chapter 1. Do you remember that? Paul said, praise the Lord for what he's doing among these people. This tiny little church in the middle of Macedonia, when the word of God came to them, they believed it. That's faith. Right when the Holy Spirit moved in their hearts, they started loving one another sacrificially. When they understood and they believed the gospel of Jesus, they began to live with a completely new expectation. What was their expectation? Chapter 1, verse 9. It says that they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Notice the similarity in what he says there at the beginning and now what he's saying here at the end. It's all the same. It all comes from the same place. It's all a product of the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of his people. And now, as Paul urges the church not to be seduced, not to be anesthetized by this present world, he's telling them that the key to being ready for the Lord is not just in trying harder, in doing more, and being better at being better, right? The key to being ready is remembering what you're waiting for in the first place. In chapter 1, Paul said they were waiting for God's Son from heaven. whom he raised from the dead. The one who delivers us from the wrath to come. And here they're still waiting for the same thing. They've put on the breastplate and the helmet of hope and salvation. Why? He says, because God has destined us for this. 
Because God's choosing us for this. Because God is appointing us and setting us apart for this. Because God is at work, he's telling us. Where does sobriety come from? He says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And it means that it's his work to make you ready, believer. It's his choice. It's his appointing that makes you children of the light. It is he who makes you wait for his unseen promises. It is the work of the Holy Spirit who gives you new affection and new longing for the salvation he's preparing for all his elect. Doesn't it wake you up a little bit to know what the Lord has in store for those who love him? Doesn't it make you want to encourage one another and build one another up with these words? Doesn't it make you want to be found faithful and ready when he comes? Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the way that you reveal in your word the work of your Holy Spirit, the gift of faith and salvation, having appointed your children for salvation in Christ Jesus. Help us, O Lord, to believe in him. Keep us ready for the day of his coming. Keep us living awake and sober, walking with you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.